Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're on Long Final, Ireland's aviation podcast. From Squawk 7000. On this long final, we finally get to do some hangar flying as we help celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Limerick Flying Club based in Kuna. Joining me by Zoom is Chairman of the Club, Harry McNamara, Founding Member, Fancy Hobbins, Current CFI, David Fielding, and Former CFI and Founder Member, Brendan Began. You're all very welcome. Brendan, will you give us the history of the club from 50 years ago? Uh, Shannon Flying Services were operating in Kuna from 1964. They brought a champion Cetabria and a Piper Tri-Pacer. So in 67, 68, uh, I went to the club and started flying. Fonzie was there already. And we, we flew with Shannon Flying Services till around 1970. When Hayden, Hayden Lawford, who was the CFI, he went off and started of Air Arm as such. He was first pilot with Air Arm. Actually, his father, before him, flew the first scheduled flight from Paris, from London to Paris in 1919, I believe. But uh, when, when they went off, we were left without any aircraft. So we approached Monster Aero Club. Uh, Eric Hutchins was the CFI. They had spare capacity. They had a couple of rallies that they weren't using on the weekend. So on Saturdays, they used to fly them up initially to Shannon. Uh, it was Alpha Uniform Juliet and Alpha Uniform Echo. And then we got permission to bring them into Kuna. And for about six months, we operated on weekends in Kuna with the rallies. They were getting busy then, and we decided ourselves that it was about time that we, we got an aircraft. So somehow Pierce Cahill got wind of the fact that we were looking for something, and he happened to have a, a Cessna 150 Alpha Double Oscar. We negotiated, Brian... Fonzie, myself, negotiate. And I think we bought it, Fonzie, for about three and a half thousand pounds. And we put money in ourselves and we borrowed. So the aircraft then was bought to Kuna. Brendan, you mentioned another name there, Brian. Brian Carpenter. Brian Carpenter, yes. He, he started his flying career in Kuna with Shannon Flying Services. He learned to fly in Kuna like the rest of us. Um, so when Shannon Flying Service moved out, Brian and myself, as I said, we brought in Monster Aero Club. As I say, at the time, too, when we bought the plane, there wasn't a club there. It had been, uh, we had been operating under the wing of Shannon Flying Service. So we decided to form Limerick Flying Club with Brian Carpenter as chairman, Fonzie Hobbins as secretary, and I was treasurer, a good man to be treasurer. I was the, the first committee of the Limerick Flying Club, and it, it went on from there, you know, so. Fonzie, I want to bring you in here as well on this one, because yeah. uh, it'd be lovely to set the 
atmosphere of what flying, I suppose, where, where even the interest came? Now, to be fair, Shannon was only up the road, but where, was, where did the interest come from some men and women in Limerick that they wanted to learn to fly? Well, uh, just for myself, uh, my father worked uh, in Shannon with Air France on the ground for years. He nothing to do with actual flying. He was in the ops department and uh, he just dragged me out there as a kid. And I become, became obsessed, I would imagine, from about four or five years of age. When, when uh, Shannon Flying Services moved on and we were stuck, we got the most air club, as Brendan said. And if you might remember, lads, uh, some of you, uh, Tom Davy was the instructor down there. And he came up with the one that I remember, a rally, a, a uniform, Juliet, arrived up in Kuna. And that went on then to become part of the fleet in Kuna of rallies that we had some many good few years later when we had them. So that was the start of the rallies. And, and the Monster Air Club came up two days a week. The interest was phenomenal. Then after a while, we had to get our own airplane. And as Brendan said, Double Oscar arrived. How much was flying an hour when you started in 71? I actually worked in Kuna at one stage for a year with Shannon Flying Service. My, my wages were six uh, pounds a week. And if I remember correctly, the flying rate was about at that time, about four something uh, an hour. So <laughs> in the old money, in the, in the very old money, <laughs> Brandon, it was three pounds, 10 shillings for an hour. I remember when I, I joined the club in in January of 72, uh, my father was an accountant uh, like myself, Hayden Lawford. He used to do Hayden's income tax, so I knew Hayden quite well. And on my brother's confirmation of all things, he arranged a flight for my brother and me with Hayden uh, in April of uh, 70, I think it was, on November Tango. And 15 minutes later, I came down and said, this is for me. Um, now, I an interest in it. My, yeah. my uncle was in the Royal Air Force and we used to play around RAF Bally Kelly as kids. And my grandfather used to take me to the Shannon Airport every week. So I had the interest. But after that flight, so my parents allowed me to join the club for my 17th birthday. And the rest is history. <laughs> David, you're also on the call with us. Uh, do you remember your first exposure to flying in Kuna? I, I do indeed, Michael. Yeah, um, I suppose we're all, you know, we all have backgrounds in aviation. Our fathers were connected or people related to us. My father worked for Trans World Airlines right from the very start in Shannon, uh, 1946, in fact, he started there. So he worked. So, of course, as a kid, I grew up in an environment of airplanes and talking about aircraft. But my first memory of Kuna and a small aircraft was a, there was a competition in an old shop in Limerick called Tots to Teens. And the competition consisted of a bunch of uh, Airfix models hung in the window and you had to identify as many as possible. And I remember one snowy evening, my dad bringing me in with a notepad. And between the two of us, I think we cracked it because we won the first prize, which was a 15 minute trip wow. in a light aircraft in Kuna. And it was actually, in fact, Hayden Lawford was the pilot. And I remember vividly to this day, uh, like Harry said, he was sold on it. You know, I was in, I think it was actually one of the Tabres, uh, that, you know, um, and uh, my, or, sorry, Fancy would confirm. But I remember like the fabric thrumming and the smell and the sensation. Yeah. So it was a 15 minute trip. And like that, then I was sold on it. And, uh, and from that point onwards, like for anybody who's ever fl- flown, it's about finding the few bob to get what, 40 minutes in every now and then. Absolutely, exactly. yeah. yeah. Do any of you remember your first solo? Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 We all do, I guess. You don't forget, do you? <laughs> no, no, it's ingrained. Yeah. It's ingrained, uh, yeah, absolutely. What, when was it for you, Fancy? It was uh, 29th of the 5th, 1977. My birthday was three days before, so I must have inherited a bit of money or got a gift of, of a bit of money or whatever. Echo India Uniform Papa was, it was the rally. 
like Dave and everybody else says there, you, you remember it to such an extent. Gary Young, Tony Doyle set me off solo. Gary Young was an instructor. He was there, the guy called Dick Hassett. And uh, in those days, there was a sort of um, a ritual. You had to bring a tie with you, put on the tie uh, after you uh, soloed. And uh, then they would decide with a hatchet to uh, cut, the, <laughs> cut the tie off you. And the tie was then uh, erected in, in the clubhouse with your name and your, your, your number. And we had some, some female pilots, not many, uh, but the donation there of a garment was, uh, well, it was a certain amount of um, debate about that. But uh, We might just leave that one at worst. Yeah, we leave that on the yeah, side. Exactly. <laughs> Brendan, do you remember yours? I do, yes. It was in the Champions at Abria, number Tango. It was with Hayden Lawford. And it was on the 31st of May, 1969, I first soloed. Um, and I remember when I took off, what, the first thing I thought was, you see, Hayden was always behind you. And yeah. Putting his hair behind you, looking out the window. But I remember when I took off, I looked, and there was no one there. And I thought, I've got to get this back on the ground again. <laughs> but it was fantastic to get off for the first time. And you too donated a tie, I presume, at the end. And it was there for many years till yeah. we out they, they were stuck in the wall in the hallway in our old clubhouse yeah harry 9th of april 74 on double oscar and what surprised me it was on the east runway because arthur brennan who was the cfi at the time had a reputation for not allowing anybody go solo on zero nine because it was a the tougher approach i understand and uh, by coincidence, I got my driving license the same week as I went solo. <laughs> Which came but, first? <laughs> <laughs> the driving license was four to five days beforehand. But speaking of the ties, I still have <laughs> my tie. I still have my tie as cut off me by Sean Walsh with some sort of pen knife that he had in the back of the car. Yeah, I remember it well. And, uh, it is something you can only do once, isn't it? Well, if you come back as a rusty pilot, you actually get to do it a second time. <laughs> so, so I remember that too. I I remember that morning was a Sunday morning, and Desdini, I was I should have mentioned, was there, and he insisted that we go down to the Davin Arms, and within about I'd say ten to fifteen minutes, I had at least two brandies in me. Uh, I was pretty young at the, or young enough at the time, so I went home very very well. Well, very well on and very high. Don't remember too much after that. <laughs> David, we have to include you in that list. Yeah, um, I started flying in 1981. And believe it or not, my solo was in um, June of 1985. And it goes back to the point you made. Like there was a big, you know, I, I was flying over the years, but it was always a question of money and finding yeah. money to fly, you know. And um, but anyway, yeah, June 9th, uh, 16th of June, 1985 was a Cessna 150. I actually sold it in Shannon. So unlike the lads, I didn't sold oh, in Kuna, right. which was kind of a bit strange. But um, that's the way things worked out for me. I was yeah. flying in, with the West Air at the time and I, I went back to Kuna then. But it's funny, like when Brendan mentioned like uh, soloing in 1969, I was eight years of age at that stage, you know. So mm. it is a huge uh, demographic spread, like in terms of, of, you know, our senior members like Brendan and, and, and Fancy who've been flying for years and, and the younger guys. And, you know, so. so far, we've made the assumption that everybody knows the story of Kuna. Um, and I suppose we should, for, for people who don't know, put the field in context. Because, well, to be fair, there's a bit of a challenge. See, there certainly was a bit of a challenge for anybody deciding they were going to try and fly there. Uh, um, well, again, the runway, as, as it is now, is considered short by a lot of pilots in Ireland. And... Uh, even though it's lengthened and widened. But when we, Brendan, certainly myself and, and Harry, I think, started, it was shorter again and uh, narrower about, again. About it, a thousand feet. 
It's an interesting fact is that um, I learned to fly before I learned to drive. And I learned to fly in Kuna and I learned to drive on Kuna runway. Big <laughs> old Jaguar, an open top Jaguar that was belonged to somebody there. So I learned to fly and drive in Kuna. So. Yeah, the interesting thing was that even when in the short runway existed, there were pilots brave enough. We had a Nasdaq in there on a particular occasion, I remember. And Hayden Lawford certainly brought in the Islander, but, but of course that was noted for getting off very short fields. But mm-hmm. a lot of yeah. people were... Uh, but Alan Bramson, the, 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 the well-known Alan Bramson, who came to Kuna quite a bit and we had seminars with him, yeah. he descri- he's, his quote was, if you, can, if you can fly into Kuna, you can fly into anywhere. The good thing for us is that because we learned on such a short runway, we don't have much sort of fear, if you like, of going into other airfields to, to any great extent. Michael, if I can just jump in there, um, just to give it a little further background to the airfield, the lads are talking about the tarmac runway, but there was actually originally, it was a grass strip, of course, mm. and there were actually five grass runways there at one time. I've yeah. seen a map of those. So it was 1947, and uh, there was a, uh, the proprietor of the field was a guy called Arthur George Toppen, yeah. and he was actually referred to as the colonel. So he's kind of really uh, the man who owned the land. They had actually operated for a little bit in Shannon, but they had to move then to Kuna. He actually uh, died in 1970, actually. He was 83 years of age at that stage. But the interesting thing was he only took up flying at the age of 60, but uh, he was quite a character. So the legacy is, you know, the modern day Kuna is, is his legacy, really, basically. He had, um, his family were fairly well to do. They had um, a... Uh, Laundry, yeah, that was it. Mm-hmm. And um, they basically, um, he bought the field then, and that's how the, the, the airfield started, actually, you know, as such, just as a bit of background there to what the guys are talking about. Harry? The, the background photograph there behind me, just to the side of my head, you can see sort of a diagonal line of reeds, just a, a dark patch. That was one of the grass runways, and it ran from the southern ditch to the northern ditch. Mm-hmm. And we had it marked, and we used to cut it with a lawnmower, and we had paving stones painted white to mark it up. So we used to fly on that on double Oscar as well, which wouldn't do today. <laughs> it was one day in Kuna, me and Fonzie were there and I was doing some circuits and Fonzie was sitting around and we were students at the time and students can't fly with another. So I said to Fonzie, come on. So he sat in the back and we took off and we flew around and did a couple of circuits. And as we came back overhead the field on one of the circuits, we saw Colonel Tappens. He had a station wagon pulling up. Yeah. And he got out with his two dogs. And we said, we're in trouble now. So I landed. We taxied right down to the end, 2-8. I turned the aircraft away from the hangar. Fonzie slipped out into the grass. Into the ditch. And I taxied up. And Colonel Tappens never knew that we had been flying. You know, so just one of the little things from Kuma. As you say, a different time. It wouldn't be done now. No, by David. <laughs> Absolutely not. No, no, definitely not. Yeah. yeah I can um, see the, the white coats coming up the road here now. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It, it was actually a different time, Michael, because, you know, obviously the regulations weren't as strict as they are now. I mean, sure. really, to be quite honest, you know, running a, a club as we do now, you're running a small airline in terms of mm. the paperwork. And the yeah, it's no work. harm to actually mention that because, you know, from, from the point of view of the school and the aircraft that you operate, just give us a little bit of the background of that now and, and just how that is actually all uh, set up. Yeah, well, you know, originally we were operating as a club and, uh, you know, members, and then we actually got more formalized. We became an RTF, a registered training facility under the auspices of the IA, and the IA regulated that, and we were, we were audited and we were controlled by the IA. We've now moved to what they call a DTO, a declared training organization. So the DTO, basically, you actually declare the training you're going to do, whether it's a PPL type course or a 
the LAPL course, and you have to then uh, demonstrate that you're capable of doing the course with all the very safety policies applied. And of course, the maintenance of the aircraft is of paramount importance. We're kind of self-regulated, if you like, uh, supervised by the IA, but we make a declaration ourselves that we are in accordance with the maintenance requirements for the aircraft, the licensing of the students, the conduct of the actual courses themselves. And of course, we run night classes as well at the club through Zoom at the moment, of course. But uh, so all of those are, you know, we, we've just, in fact, recently re- completed a report, which we're required to do each year for the IA, and it's an EASA, you know, the European Air Safety Organization uh, report, which shows what we've done in the past year. Mm-hmm. And uh, it also declares, you know, that we're, we're still maintaining the standards required to run, you know, what is ostensibly a public flying club in the sense that we have people coming in to do introductory flying lessons and we have our own members as well. So it is very much like running a small airline, basically. Mm-hmm. We have a CAMO, then a continuing airworthiness maintenance organization, and they supervise from afar our maintenance and tell us what maintenance events are coming up with the aircraft. So it's all very, very strictly regulated. Um, that doesn't take the fun out of it, though. No, not at all. No, no, it doesn't. I mean, obviously, we have a very, very good team of people and we have a huge wealth of experience in Brendan and, and Fonts. Harry is our current chairman. I'm the CFI and I also overlook, you know, the maintenance. But, you know, once you put that aside, the basic essentials are still the same bringing people in, hopefully giving them that thrill of the first 15 or 20 minute flight that hooks them on it, uh, gets them going. And then, of course, the, the great satisfaction of seeing them go first solo and then eventually getting their PPLs. So there's no abatement in the interest. There's a continuous interest in flying. And of course, the fun, you know, there's some tremendous characters in the club. And of course, we have great fun as well, you know. And uh, you're talking about uh, pe- people, you know, doing it for fun, but some of your members have actually also turned it into a career. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. We have quite a number of airline pilots who actually have their origins in Kuna. Uh, we have a lot of members and current members flying for Aer Lingus, for Ryanair, uh, Emirates Airlines and for British Airways. So we... we, we all all with the fondness for short runways then, yeah? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure their engineers don't thank them for probably the heavy, heaviness of braking and using tires on, on big jets, landing on, on short, on long runways runway is short but Brendan basically you know is responsible he was a CFI for a good number of years and uh, before that Tony Doyle mm-hmm. so they were the mentors to a lot of these young men who um, aspired to do greater things to go on to become airline pilots and you know learning in Kuna no doubtly had its benefits in terms of good you, air you, you mentioned young men there as well but uh, you also had uh, have a good representation of women amongst your membership Absolutely, yeah. We're very, very, uh, very strong uh, on, on encouraging women to fly in Kuna. We we could actually do with more members, uh, female members. The one thing we don't have, unfortunately, is a female instructor. But we do have, um, you know, Jane McGill is is uh, very, very prominent in pushing the whole, um, you know, encouragement for women to fly. She has the the museum out there in Shannon. But Jane got her PPL in Kuna herself. Uh, we have a couple of girls. We've at least half a dozen ladies flying with us at the moment, mm. and of course we have a lot of past members as well who who went on. It's not a strictly male preserve. It can be seen to be a kind of a strictly male preserve, but obviously you know we we try to encourage women to come in and um, get them flying. One of the critical choices for us has always been the type of aircraft to operate in Kuna. Uh, obviously, given the short strip and the narrowness of it, you know there's crosswind limitations and performance limitations. Down to the years, we've had to be very careful with our choice of aircraft. We've always tried to provide the ability for people to have a touring aircraft that they could actually just take their friends and families. 
Yeah. But it hasn't always worked out. So right now we have a fleet of two-seater aircraft. We have three of them. So that kind of works out uh, nicely because we have a spare aircraft which PPLs can fly and at the same time giving us the capability if we have technical issues to have an aircraft on on, on standby. But we'll, all three aircraft are in demand. We'll talk more about the aer- aircraft in a minute, but maybe if we go back uh, and just talk about that idea of fly-outs and fly-ins and uh, and and get you to think about that. Harry, do you, do you recall any particular uh, trips that, that stand out uh, in your memory anyway. Yes, and I think it's probably the best one we've ever had. And we, I actually wrote an article called North by Northwest afterwards, which Mark published in Flying in Ireland. It was May of 2010, and we took 10 aircraft from Kuna, with Jerry Humphreys joining us with the Flying Cow, launched on a Saturday morning to Enniskillen. And uh, we picked up fat-free and duty-free fuel and lunch and uh, then we headed up Lockern around the back of Ben Baldwin and into Sligo where we had a very very good night mm. the following morning then I mean we had absolutely cavalcade weather for the whole weekend in the middle of May and we couldn't have asked for better weather so we headed up to uh, Donegal then the following morning and back. So I know I did about five hours flying a Cherokee that weekend and it was a special weekend. And uh, the, if you go back into our Facebook page, there's a, a selection of photographs from that day and there was one put up last week of all of us at Sligo Airport. So that was a particularly good one. We've had a few other ones. Um, I've been involved in to Sligo. We've gone out to the Iron Islands. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. 
Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Donegal again. Fonzie, so, yeah. tell us about the Donegal trip. Well, um, I'm t- a little bit unclear of the whole thing, uh, the start of it, because it was a plan A and, a, and then an emergency plan B was brought in. <laughs> Plan B, we were to go to fairly, you know, ambitious flight that I tried to organize with PPLs, everybody, private owners and so on. Plan B came into, uh, made a phone call to Donegal, got, got a hotel there for, I don't know, 15, 16 of us, agreed uh, quickly on the phone. And next thing we were airborne and flew the whole way up to Donegal and had a fantastic um, night and, and a great return back or whatever it does that, that was one of the ones that stands out for me it was all very hectic the the last few minutes but worked out very well in the end brendan yes i i'm just thinking i that was one of the ones i went on i, I did the bigger one but i think i went on nearly all of the um and the skilling another one yeah. the skilling we did yes we did remember bantry uh we did bantry yeah we did Bantry a couple of times and stayed in the west lodge overnight yeah, just on that, um, Brendan might, might have just brought it back there. Haversford West was an, as a place that I've become connected with and um, the club there and friends there. We were due to go there and um, because of weather, of course, had to abandon it. The club over there have been fantastic. When we have fly-ins, they've come over at least three or four times with a fleet of maybe three or four aircraft stay for the whole weekend. They've been fantastic and I managed to fly over there myself and it, it was great. And just if I could for a minute, Michael, go back. Sure. I mentioned at the very start, Uniform Julie at the rally, and it's just come back to me now. And I'm sure you know Michael Trainer pretty well. Well, Mike uh, flew out on an occasion to the Iron Islands with his wife and a friend of a beautiful summer evening. I remember him leaving Kuna. I was there at the time. He featured this in his very, very good uh, publication. And he unfortunately had uh, an accident and he landed on in the Shear. Hayden Lawford happened just luckily to be flying the Islander overhead, saw the incident, landed. There weren't too many injuries, got them anyway, flew them back. But some weeks later, about 10 or 12 of us went out on the ferry out to the Iron Islands. And somehow to this day, there should have been a film made of this because (laughs) we brought uniform Julie with the nose sticking into a relatively small boat, as I would call it with the tail out over the end, and we're all hanging on for dear life. Um, I was literally on the edge of it. I'm very bad on the water, and it was quite a high swell. We managed to get it to Doolin, mounted it on a tr- flat-back truck, arrived back in Kuna about one in the morning. And uh, to this day, and uh, it's a, it was an unbelievable experience, but that aircraft was put back in the air again after that. Sounds, <laughs> sounds like a job for the A-team. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. We, we were talking about fly-outs, but I want to talk about fly-ins as well. Um, and the uh, idea that, you know, when all this is over and we're back flying again, and if there are people listening to us who decide they'd love to visit Kuna, would you give us a briefing on it? Because we should remind people as well, you have what, uh, Limerick Prison, you have Shannon control zone yeah. and you, you have a, a, what should we say? It would be a good navigation exercise. Who's going to tell me about how we do that? David. Yeah. Um, Michael, it's, it's, it sounds kind of um, daunting, but it, it is actually relatively easy to fly into Kuna because although we are actually in the Shannon control zone, we do have a fillet of uncontrolled airspace, which is quite large. So it enables us, for example, to fly in the circuit without talking to Shannon from surface to 1000. You can also then approach the airfield from the northeast or from the south and enter into the actual Class G airspace 
without talking to Shannon, you can speak to us on our local frecency, which is published on, on the AIP 129.9. So uh, it is relatively easy. The P9 is actually uh, promulgated on the charts. And once you stay clear of the city centre, you're not going to infringe the P9. Mm. And Shannon are very good then. I mean, obviously, if you're on a flight plan, Shannon will talk to you all the way down. Uh, but does not, you know, you can actually fly into Kuna in class G airspace without talking to anybody. Uh, so it's not as daunting as people think. The only thing, obviously, is the runway length and the width, you know, so that depends on the performance of your aircraft and your so, proficiency yeah, in short Like field. anybody going to an airfield, a briefing in advance and prior permission probably mm. is the other requirement. Yeah. yeah, we have a PPR up on our website and uh, the PPR, uh, you fill in the PPR form, it automatically then goes to myself, Harry, Brendan and a couple of others and we will either call you or ring you back and discuss mm. regulations or, or the actual operational criteria for going into Kuna as such, you know. So um, it's it's quite easy, and we try to make it as easy as possible because we encourage people to come in and visit us. We love having visitors there, you know. Harry, let's uh, talk a little bit about the the current fleet. What was the what was the thinking behind that, and what do you have? At the moment, we have uh, three Technums. The first of which came in in two thousand and seven, Lima Fox Charlie, and that was ferried in from Naples by Brendan Began and our late friend John Keane. There had been some research as to what to try and. They focused in on that, so we bought that straight off the factory floor and had it delivered new. And then about 12 months later, before I go to that, sadly, about a week after we took delivery of Lima Fox Charlie, uh, poor John died, unfortunately, in an aerobatic accident in Ardfert. And so when it came to our second tectum, uh, we were able to get the registration in John's memory, Julia Papakilo. We got to the point then of deciding we needed a third aircraft, the demand was such. And we looked around, we went online looking at Technums, and then we knew Waterford were getting out of the Technums. They'd one left uh, Fox Delta. So after a bit of hard-nosed negotiations with Andrew and the boys there, we bought that. So we took delivery of that August 12 months ago. So it's great. We're the only club in Ireland. I think we've got the only three Technums on the Irish Register now. I mean, they're standing as a good stead. We have a good relationship with our suppliers for Rotex and we take them. Our camos are great and they, they're they working well and they're popular with the students. I quite frankly love them. And yeah, uh, right. <laughs> they, they've been good for the club and they're quite economical compared to assessments and stuff like that. We're charging 135 an hour for students at the moment and 120 an hour for uh, PPLs and solo. Uh, now, obviously, that will need review from time to time, but uh, they are relatively good value airplanes to fly. We have about 100 members in the club, about 45 of them active students and about 40 PPLs, and then the rest are hangers-on or less <laughs> less active. But at the same There's time... There's room for everyone, isn't there? Yeah, yeah and, we have, we have, and we have another seven aircraft at the airfield which are owned by club members in groups are uh, single owners it creates a good atmosphere good family atmosphere at the club and we have a committee of nine of us that run the club and with 100 members there's quite a bit of work involved in it mm. um you know we're flying for fun and it's good that, that's a question to all of you what makes the club work I suppose if i could jump in there michael the, the guys you're looking at there are huge contributors to the maintenance of the club and I, I guess it's you know like in every club you'll have a small core of people that do a lot of the work but I suppose we all love flying so much we do it for each other basically to provide the facilities for our student pilots for our PPLs and um, we don't think of it as work you know it's a kind of enjoyment really basically and what makes the club work obviously is there's people there with specialist skills 
Uh, my area of expertise would be kind of the technical side of things, supporting the maintenance issue. Harry, of course, is a financial accountancy, that kind of stuff. Brendan had good uh, management skills and that kind of stuff. So we all had something to bring to the table in terms of, of personal abilities. As Harry's always saying to me, I'll mind the pounds and shillings, you mind the spanners, you know. So that's the way it works, you know. And unfortunately, the modern aircraft we have as well, they're environmentally friendly. They use unleaded fuel. They're easy to maintain. And because they're relatively young, then we don't have huge maintenance issues with them, you know. So those are contributory factors as well. You know, as, as Brendan spoke about the 90s back there, our fleet was very old back then. We had problems sourcing parts and we had, you know, problems with corrosion and stuff with particular types of aircraft. So it was becoming very difficult to function financially. But fortunately, you know, because of the people and the people make the club, you know, the machinery is just one aspect of it. But it's really the core members that make the club and uh, the esprit de corps and the, the ethos of the club members that makes it work. And that's, I suppose, from my point of view, that's how it works, really. Yeah, well, last weekend for the 6th, I blasted Facebook with a lot of memories, you know, starting with the just the, the basic history of the club, then our rally fleet, other fleet, and then I finished off with a tribute to the members, including past members like uh, Tony Doyle. But the comment I recall I said was that the aircraft and the desire to fly them is the reason for the club, but it's the members who make the club. And I think that's very, very true, Akuna. You look at the number of members that we have there with 20, 30 years of membership and still going and contributing and that is the prime ethos of the club mm. we're in it together we're flying for fun and, and michael i suppose you know just to further harry's point there we're curators of the club you know uh, it's it's because of the past members that have made it so successful and the likes of going right back to the colonel top and and as brendan alluded to all the hayden lawford all these people you know so we are actually the the, the, the generations of those guys that are now looking after the club and the curators and hopefully we'll pass it on to a younger generation of people you know brendan no as as david said there it's the people you know we've we've attracted i think flying attracts it's like any club but flying attracts a certain type of person and once you get into it and once you get to know people it's it's really good and you know everybody helps one another and it's friendly that's what i love about the club you know and it's not like you know you're going to if you go to a flying school it's a business Ours isn't ours. We take care of people, and that's it. Not for profit club. <laughs> and what about the, the the relationship with other clubs around the country? We have very good relationship, you know, with um, with Waterford. Uh, we, we we used to have very good relationship with Kerry when the club was in Kerry, but there's no club there. Uh, Sligo as well. We have good relationship with the club in Sligo, and we try and visit them, you know, as much as possible. Lime Tree as well. We always get visitors in from Lime Tree. They come, they descend on the place on a Saturday, uh, you know, a fleet of maybe six or seven of them and come for their coffee and vanish off into the blue again. Yeah, the line three, seven, as I call them. (laughs) (laughs) David, a question, I suppose, for you in in your current title. There are going to be a lot of rusty pilots after this pandemic. Yeah. What's your advice? What will people do? Basically, they just need to get in touch with their instructors or their PPL pals and get out there and just get, you know, get the skills because it's like any skill, you lose it if you don't use it. And uh, we have done our best to facilitate people during the lockdowns as, as best we can to, to maintain. So, you know, we have strict rules uh, on currency for the aircraft. But obviously, if people have been flying 
uh, regularly up to the lockdown, you know, we're, we're waving certainly, you know, depending on people's experience. Obviously, if a person hasn't flown for quite some time, they'll require to be checked out again. Mm. So that is one of the continuing difficulties. But in fairness, the Irish Aviation Authority and the Civil Aviation Authority of the UK have relaxed their rules about expiries of ratings, etc. So they're actually giving people breathing space and extending ratings and stuff like that, you know, so allowing people to, to at least not lose their paperwork uh, ratings and, and um, proficiencies, you know, so, uh, but it is, it is a challenge, no doubt about it. Brendan, can you teach anyone to fly? Yes, you can. If they, if they have the interest and, you know, I mean, basically if you can drive, you can fly, but you have to put a lot into it and you have to be prepared for weather. Weather is the big thing. People don't understand. We have it all the time. Kuna, sharp, narrow, and we're on the West coast as such. Things change. People have to understand that it takes time to learn. You have to have patience, but you can teach anybody really. Here's a question for all of you then. If you were to think back of the one flight that you'd love to fly again, what would it be? Once I'm going to come to you first. The, the oh one flight God. that you'd love to just, just recreate again, if you could rewind the tape and play it again, what would it be? Well, uh, plenty of some very nice ones, obviously, in Ireland. Um, but in 2008, I went to Canada, to Kingston, uh, not too far away from Toronto with a friend, and um, both PPLs. And I'd organized this, and he heard about it, and he wanted to come, and I was glad he did, Terry Brennan. We were based at this beautiful, oh, absolutely idyllic uh, location on the Lake Ontario, and down the middle of it was the border, so the USA and the other side. And well, I, I, I wanted to do 10 hours, and I, I got that practically uh, before we left. We flew Cessna 150s and 172s, and I cannot, I cannot put into words the, the, the sight. Every time you took off out over this magnificent uh, vista of this lake and the countryside, and Canada is pretty flat where we were. And I flew to various different airfields, and one of them was Peterborough. Discovered only a year or two ago that my name, second name, Hobbins, a fairly weird kind of a name. But anyway, uh, quite a lot of them out there. Never knew they're there. But at the memory, I can I can rarely get it out of my head. And here in Ireland, every time we take off, within minutes, we can be over uh, Killaloo and up the lakes. And you never, ever get tired of that. You can go up and down it seven days a week. I don't think you'd ever get tired of it. Certainly, Canada stands out as one of the, the main, but so many here as well. So many here as well. Harry? Again, as Francie says, trips up Loch Derg. I love going into Bantry. It's my favourite airfield in Ireland. I have uh, the FAA piggyback, and I've been fortunate to do a lot of flying in the States and uh, do a lot of flight in, in Florida. But my two favourite and most standout trips, one was out of Boeing Field in Seattle with my brother, and we went to a place called Friday Harbour, up and north of Puget Sound near the Canadian border. It was about an hour and a quarter flight each way, and right down through the over the city of Seattle, going back into Boeing Field and on the way back in, I was told I was number five for approach, and my number four was the King Air joining from the right. So that was intense, and that was an absolutely amazing experience. And one of the best lunch flights I ever had, for the $100 hamburger, was out to <laughs> Catalina Island for a buffalo burger um, out of uh, Torrance Field in Los Angeles. So I've had some fantastic experiences over there. It's a totally different environment. I never heard it called a $100 burger. It's a great idea. Uh, I'm, I'm, that's that, what they that's call it over there. Out. That's, yeah, 
definitely. Brendan, your 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 favorite flight ever? The one that sticks in my memory has to be the, the flight back from Italy with the Technum in 2007. We took off and flew up the coast. We went up, we had to stay 25 kilometers out from Rome. So we were out over the sea. We, we didn't actually, when we took off, it was on a Wednesday uh, near Naples. And as we flew up the coast, we noticed that there's a little overflow valve on the back of the wing. We noticed fuel coming out. And we said we had intended to fly to um, straight over the Mediterranean to Cannes. But we said, no, look, we were coming up on the island of Elba. So we flew into Elba. Now, Elba is a funny one because uh, you approach from the sea, you come in and you fly uh, left downwind and you're heading for the hills. Then you turn before you get to the hills and you come back in and land. And I'd say it was the first Irish registered aircraft I'd ever seen in Elba. Uh, but uh, we went through the manual and we found that the fuel, when it's coming from either wing, the overflow, it goes into the left tank. So we had filled the plane and we were feeding from the right and that's what happened. But the flight back from there, back to Ireland, it was 1,400 miles, I think, and it was fantastic. It's the one that really sticks in my memory. David? Yeah, um, nothing as exotic as that now, unfortunately. <laughs> but uh, Sounded good. Yeah, I suppose, you know, as, as Fancy said, like Ireland is a beautiful country. And if you do get the weather, it's one of the most beautiful countries in the world to fly over. Absolutely. And one particular flight that sticks in my mind, I remember coming back from uh, Kilrush in County Kildare one evening. We'd, I brought an aircraft up there for servicing. And uh, that was a good number of years ago. It was an old Rally 880. And I was just plodding along. It was a beautiful summer's evening. And I actually had the canopy of the aircraft open. You could open the canopy in those. And it was warm and balmy. And the airplane was just humming along. And the sun was beginning to set as I faced, you know, I was quite high. I could see the Atlantic and that kind of stuff. And it was just absolutely magical. And, you know, those kind of flights are spiritual, really. You know, you, you, this number of flights will touch you. It's, it's part of the whole thing of flying, you know, once it gets in your being, that's it, you know. Well, what people can't see is that as each of you guys were telling your story, your face has changed, you animated, <laughs> your eyes twinkled, and, and it does sound like something that indeed we, we all love very much indeed. I suppose time for the final word, and it is, as you say, congratulations on your 50th anniversary. What does the future hold? Uh, is recreational aviation going to be okay? Is it going to be something that we can still look forward to and it's going to be encouraged? Harry? If I can pop in there, I coordinate our um, introductory flights and the demand and the interest is phenomenal in spite of lockdown. I mean, we as a club sold nearly a hundred of these things over Christmas and we're finding maybe probably one in 10 ends up joining the club. So there is still a huge amount of interest. A lot of people have money saved from lockdown and a lot of people are professing, let's go do something with it, learn to fly. As soon as we can get out of lockdown, we go back and I think there's a good future for us. I think, Michael, from a technical point of view, obviously with you know environmental trends the way they are and um, you know global warming, we do have to look at the technical aspects of operating aircraft. Currently, our airplanes use unleaded fuel now they're adding, you know, ethanol to the fuel. So eventually they'll probably increase ethanol levels to a point where it's not going to be technically feasible to operate conventional piston engine, compression engines. So I think possibly the future is going to be electric aircraft. You know, um, you know, there's a lot of work being done on light aircraft designs, both in hybrid and fully autonomous, you know, fully electric aircraft. Mm. So I suppose as a club, we'll probably evolve into that area and probably look at that and next, but you know, that'll probably be a generation ahead of us, I'd say, until that technology is, is firmly um, 
you know, established. But I suppose, you know, in the meantime, we have to look forward to that as well. So we, we do have an environmental responsibility going forward. But as Harry said, there's an interest in aviation all the time. People want to learn to fly. So I suppose the equipment will change, but not the people. The people's interests will continue. I think it's uh, a total privilege to be able to fly. I was flying a few weeks ago on a beautiful mm. day and I was on my own that I just felt somebody should be with me to be looking at this. Um, and I'm lucky in that back some years ago, I took I got a share in a, an aircraft. It's a Eurostar, it's a microlight, but it's a lovely aircraft and I'm retired. So I'm lucky in that I can, when the weather, when we do actually get good weather, I can go and fly it when I want. And it's fantastic. And as the lad said, I don't think you'll ever have a problem getting people to fly. I think there's a fascination with it all of the time. And uh, people will always come to learn to fly, I think. Brendan, last word with you. Yes, I agree with Fonzie. Um, man has always looked to the sky. Look at our symbol, Icarus, right? The tail of the first plane is Icarus. I think there'll always be an interest. And as long as people look to the sky, Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us on Long Final. And uh, you certainly whetted my appetite anyway to uh, get that prior permission form in and pop down as soon as the weather is good. And we wish you all the very best for the next 50 years at the Limerick (laughs) Flying Club. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.